Our God and Father in heaven, we do assemble this evening lifting our voices in sung prayer to you with saints throughout the world and in heaven above, praying that you would have mercy upon the Israel of God, those whom you chose even from the foundation of the world, have purpose to redeem by the blood of your Son, and whom you are drawing to everlasting communion and joy by your Holy Spirit. We are thankful, O God, for the work of salvation for the accomplishment of redemption and for its application to our hearts and to our souls. And we are thankful that the gospel is going forth with power and success in all the world. And though that success may not always be obvious to our eyes, we pray, God, that it would be seen by us in faith and that we would rejoice in your good work. We are thankful for the blessings of this week, O God, for the ways that you have cared for and sustained us for those whom you have helped in answer to the prayers of your saints, for those who you continue to bless, those for whom we pray day by day. We pray, O God, that you would relieve suffering and grant healing from illness and recovery from surgeries and good outcomes, O Lord, to the trials that have overtaken the saints. And we pray, O God, that in these matters and in these moments, we would be able to show to one another the love of Christ that has been shown to us from above. We ask your blessing upon our nation, O God, that you would have mercy upon her, granting her repentance and revival, raising up God-fearing men to lead us, and causing your word to run swiftly and be glorified, not only in this land, but in every nation under heaven, that your church would be well established and would be strong and healthy, and that she would be powerful in her witness of the risen and reigning Lord of all lords. Please bless us tonight, God, as we open your word. We pray that your spirit would help us, that he would guide us in wisdom and understanding, that we would learn things that we have not known, that we would understand better things that we have known, and that we would be humbled and made reverent and made all the more to rejoice and give thanks for the great work that you have done and are doing and for your revelation of yourself. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If you want to open your Bibles in the New Testament to Romans chapter 11, we're probably going to spend the majority of our time tonight in that chapter. We'll talk about that in just a minute. The handout that you have in the back, more copies available, but you've had it for two weeks. Uh, We've been working through it last week and then again tonight. Uh, As we're talking about an optimistic eschatology, we began last week talking about the fact that this is to be... Uh, embraced because it is the straightforward reading of many New Testament promises. And just in the two prior weeks of our study with regard to some of the Old Testament texts that we surveyed, we're not trying to do a deep dive on any particular passage at this point in our study. That will come, but what we're really trying to do is get a sense, first in the Old Testament and now in the New Testament, of the general tone and tenor and trajectory of God's kingdom promises and the prophecies that he has made. And so last week we looked at Jesus' global mission of salvation. We talked about uh, the gospel of the kingdom and how the kingdom really is uh, the centerpiece of the gospel proclamation. We talked about Jesus' parables and the way in which they represent that kingdom and its progress in the world and even some of the parables such as the parable of the wheat and the tares that are thought by some to contradict or uh, you know, ca- kind of counter an optimistic perspective on the present uh, world, uh, nevertheless uh, can be read in such a way as to support that hope. We saw Jesus' promise to build a victorious church, that it's the gates of Hades that will not prevail. In other words, the gates 
of hell or of the enemy will not withstand the assault that the church is making. We saw how in the Great Commission, uh, Jesus sends out his disciples to disciple the nations, not just people from among them. And that commission is the extension, as we saw in previous studies, of the dominion mandate to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And in what way is the earth being subdued? It's being subdued through faith in Jesus Christ. It's being subdued to the obedience of God. In fact, Paul will say at the beginning and end of the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1 and verse 5, chapter 16 and verse 26, that he has received apostleship and that this gospel ministry has been committed not only to the apostles but to the church in order to bring the nations, all the nations, to the obedience of faith. And so that is the trajectory. That's the scope of the mission. That's the intention of the Great Commission is to bring nations to acknowledge Jesus Christ as Lord. And we've said several times, including in sermons um, Uh, prior to this series, that the message of the gospel, the good news that we are sent to all the world to declare, is really that Jesus is Lord. His saving work is a a, a very important uh, consequence of that. But the message actually is Jesus' kingship. He is Lord, and because he is Lord, he is able to save. And so many in kind of the evangelical-ish world today have got this exactly backwards where they think, I can have Jesus as my Savior, but not as my Lord. And maybe one day I will also have him as my Lord. But actually, he's Lord first. He is the Lord of all lords, King of all kings, has all authority in heaven and on earth. He's Lord regardless of what you think, regardless of how you feel, regardless of what you believe, regardless of how you live your life. Jesus is Lord. That's the objective reality that's announced by the gospel. And that's why Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, one of those groups that Jesus will take vengeance upon at his second coming on the last day are those who do not obey the gospel. The gospel is what it is. And it will be a message of salvation to those who embrace it in faith and believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it will be a message of condemnation. For those who do not, that's why there are gospel threats, as we've seen before uh, the Synod of Dort said uh, many, many years ago, back in the 17th century. So the gospel is the aroma of life to those who are being saved. It's the aroma of death to those who are perishing. But the gospel is going out as an objective declaration that Jesus is Lord, and all of those who believe and embrace that message will indeed be saved through his name. Now, what remains for us tonight on your handout is really on pages 5 and 6, if you want to look there. All Israel shall be saved. We're going to talk about that in Romans chapter 11. And then a couple of other short, you know, kind of quick hits that we've been doing thus far, uh, uh, as we've been doing thus far. The last enemy that Jesus will destroy is death. Talk about the significance of that, time permitting. The new covenant being the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises to bless the entire world. That'll kind of tie off a loose end from uh, one of our earlier lessons. And then the kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord. And we'll talk about the significance of that as well. But I want to spend most of our time tonight in Romans chapter 11. And that is not because we're going to do a deep dive on Romans 11. We're not. But we are going to spend more time on this passage than we have any of the other passages And that is because although this passage does fit into this general theme of saying just the straightforward reading makes it sound pretty optimistic. It makes it sound, we would say, post-millennial. Nevertheless, this is a hotly contested passage. And I don't want to simply assert that you can read Romans 11 in a post-millennial way and move on, especially considering the fact that the last time I preached on Romans 11, which was eight years ago, I think, eight years ago, uh, I took a different view of this chapter. And so what I want to do is talk to you about why my view changed 
and, and just kind of suggest to you some reasons that you might read this in a different way than you might have before. I want to start by reading the entire chapter. I know it's lengthy, but uh, you can follow along in your Bible. Remember that in Romans chapter 11, we're actually at the end of a section of three chapters. Paul's been dealing in chapters 9, 10, and 11 with the question of Israel. What about Israel? If men are saved by the grace of God through faith in Jesus Christ and not by the works of the law, where does that leave the people of the law, the people of the Torah, the people of Israel whom God chose and gave covenant with or made covenant with in the Old Testament? And so he's answering that question and he kind of brings that conversation to culmination here in chapter 11. Listen as I read. He says, I say then, has God cast away his people? Certainly not. For I also am an Israelite of the seed of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel, saying, Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what does the divine response say to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Even so, then, at the present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it, and the rest were blinded. Just as it is written, God has given them a spirit of stupor, eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear to this very day. And David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a recompense to them. Let their eyes be darkened so that they do not see and bow down their back always. I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? Certainly not. But through their fall to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? For I speak to you Gentiles, inasmuch as I am an apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry, if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. For if their being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? For if the first fruit is holy, the lump is also holy. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. And if some of the branches were broken off, and you, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them, and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree, do not boast against the branches. But if you do boast, remember that you do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off that I might be grafted in. Well said. Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he may not spare you either. Therefore, consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail severity, but toward you goodness if you continue in his goodness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. For if you were cut out of the olive tree, which is wild by nature, and were grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree, how much more will these, who are natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? For I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, 
that blindness in part has happened to Israel until all the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so all Israel will be saved, as it is written. The deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet have now obtained mercy through their disobedience, even so these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. For God has committed them all to disobedience, that He might have mercy on all. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and His ways past finding out. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to Him? For of Him and through Him and to Him are all things, to whom be glory forever. Amen. Now let me tell you a little bit about my history with this passage. I grew up in an amillennial tradition, and uh, so I was never uh, eschatologically, at least, a dispensationalist, even though we read the Bible dispensationally in certain ways. But I didn't grow up with the idea that God had one plan for the ethnic Israel of God, and then he has another plan for the church, and, and that there were these two different people groups and two different paths forward, two different futures, and lots of prophecies still to be fulfilled for the state of Israel. I, I grew up believing none of those things were true. And so I already had kind of my defenses up when I came to a passage like Romans chapter 11 to say, whatever it is saying, I know that it's not prophesying some kind of a dispensational uh, uh, future for the ethnic nation of Israel. When I moved out here uh, 10 years ago and began preaching pretty shortly thereafter through the book of Romans, uh, I was reading a lot of different commentaries, and I would taught on this particular chapter before in other churches I'd pastored. But as I'm coming up to Romans chapter 11, I'm encountering commentary after commentary written by Reformed theologians, not dispensational commentators, who are saying this passage is talking about a future mass conversion of ethnic Jews. And I'm left scratching my head. I think I thought that's what the dispensationalists believe. I thought that's what all, you know, kind of the, I love them as my brothers and sisters, but, but kind of the people who are prophecy crazy, right? And, and they're, they're like reading the tea leaves and they're seeing the reestablishment of the state of Israel and they're thinking that the end is near and, you know, we're about to have the, the, you know, locust helicopters out of the book of Revelation. All of that, all of that's coming. It's just right on the doorstep. And I thought, that's, that's who interprets Romans chapter 11 in this way. Not men from the Reformation, not Reformed theologians. And yet I found again and again and again and again references to Romans chapter 11 that read it in just that way to say, no, no, there are not two separate people groups that God has. It's not as if ethnic Israel is one people of God and the church is another people of God and they have two different futures and there are two different trajectories. No, no, no. All that these men were saying is that God is not done saving those who are ethnically descended from Abraham. God still promises to regather and convert to faith in Jesus the majority of Jews at some future point. Now, I did not know at that time, though I came later to understand it, that that was, in fact, the historic view of the Protestant church and arguably of the ancient and medieval church. There were some disagreements at different points in time about how to exegete this passage, but, but it's certainly not a new idea that just popped up in the 19th century 
when dispensationalism did. In fact, this was the view of many of our Reformed fathers and the view of many Reformed theologians that I just took for granted would never read it in that way. That, by the way, is the way that this passage is interpreted not only by postmillennialists but by many amillennialists as well. And that was another curveball that I just didn't know how to deal with. Well, when I came to finally preach through this passage, I kind of stuck with what was familiar, with what, with what I knew and what I felt like I could be certain of, and that was to interpret verse 26, so all Israel will be saved in terms of the Israel of God. And I don't think that what I said about that was necessarily untrue. I mean, wouldn't we all affirm that God is going to save all of spiritual Israel which consists of both Jews and Gentiles who believe in Jesus and were chosen by God for salvation before the foundation of the world. Well, yeah, sure. But that doesn't really address the exegetical difficulties in the passage that I was kind of trying to avoid. There were many commentators, many theologians pointing out reasons in the text that Israel there had to mean ethnic Israel and not just spiritual Israel in kind of the general scheme of things. And so as I continued to study that passage in the years following, I came more and more to embrace the idea that, in fact, Romans chapter 11 is promising a future revival of Jews, Jews who will be brought to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Now, some of you may have friends who are Jewish, or you may have friends in Israel. I do. And and the reality is much of the state of Israel today is secular. It's not even Jewish in a religious sense. It's secular. Many of the Israelis that I know have no real faith in God at all, have no meaningful commitment to their history or to their heritage. Now, that's not to say that all Jews are in that camp. I also have uh, ethnic Jews who are my brothers and sisters in Christ because they are worshipers of Jesus and they have embraced him as the Messiah. And I know other Jews who are very serious about the faith of their forefathers, although they reject Jesus of Nazareth as the Messiah. So there are exceptions. But I think that Romans chapter 11 is suggesting that before the end, there will be a mass conversion of ethnically Jewish people who recognize Jesus as their Messiah and ultimately are saved by grace through faith. Now, if you look at your notes, I'll point out to you a couple of things. And again, we're not going to take the entire chapter apart. That would take several weeks. But I am going to hit some highlights and show you some reasons for reading the chapter in that way. You will notice in verses 11 and 12 that we read a moment ago, as Paul is talking about ethnic Jews and Gentiles, he says, I say then, have they, the Jews, stumbled that they should fall? And, and the, the idea there is utterly fall, that they could never be saved, that they could not recover from this fall. And he says, certainly not. But through their fall, to provoke them to jealousy, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Now, what what is the point of God giving salvation to the Gentiles and provoke the Jews to jealousy if there is no outcome to that jealousy? In other words, why, why is God provoking them at all? He doesn't say in order to exacerbate their condemnation. That would make sense, right? In order to exacerbate their condemnation, salvation has come to the Gentiles. So not only have the Jews not believed, but now the Gentiles have believed, and that exacerbates the condemnation of the house of Israel. But that's not what he says. He says God sent salvation to the Gentiles, you and me, in order to provoke them to jealousy. That that doesn't make a lot of sense unless there's something beyond that jealousy. He's provoking them unto what end? 
But Paul goes on in verse 12. He says, For if their fall is riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? If God saves the Gentile nations through the unbelief of the Jewish people, right? It's the unbelief of the Jews that prompts Paul and the other apostles to go to the Gentiles. We've seen that in, in references that we've read before. Acts chapter 13. The whole city, Antioch of Pisidia, is, is gathered together on the next Sabbath and Paul and Barnabas are preaching and the Jews don't believe and they're hissing and rejecting everything that he's saying. He says, all right, since you judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, I go to the Gentiles. And that's what's happening here. But Paul is saying, if their fall into unbelief, if their failure through disobedience brings salvation to the rest of the world... What would happen if they believed in Jesus? Do you think that it would go poorly for the Gentiles? Do you think that that would, that would incur loss for the rest of the world? Or, or would, it, would it kind of tie a bow on the whole thing? Now we have the Jews and the Gentiles who have embraced the Messiah. And he says in verses 25 and 26, I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And so, thus, in this manner, all Israel will be saved. That's what, the, that's what the original is saying, right? In this way. In what way? The, the, the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, and blindness has happened to the Jewish people until that happens, but then presumably the blindness is lifted, and then what, what's the result? In this way, as the blindness lifts from Israel, and the Gentiles have come to Christ in faith, all Israel is saved. All Israel is saved. And, that, and that's why, why, again, eight years ago I would say, well, see, he's talking about spiritual Israel because it includes Jews and Gentiles. And you say, yes, that, yes, yes. The Israel of God is not an ethnic community. It's an elect community. The Israel of God is not determined biologically or genetically. It's determined in terms of faith. And so, yes, the Israel of God, all Israel is going to be saved. But here's the challenge. In this passage, ask yourself each time Israel is named whether it is ethnic Israel or spiritual Israel, and you will see the problem. Every other reference outside of verse 26 to Israel in this chapter is very clearly a reference to the physical nation of ethnic Jews. It's a challenging passage. There are three primary interpretations of this reference uh, in verse 26 to all Israel being saved. First of all, some say it's all of the elect, Jew and Gentile, however few or many that may be. That's the all Israel that is in view here. And that was the view that I have previously taken and, and preached uh, in years past. A second view is that this is a reference to the elect Jews throughout history. All, all of the elect Israelites that God chose before the foundation of the world, a few from this generation, a few from this generation, more from that generation, less from this generation, but all of, all of the elect Israelites will be saved. And the third view is that it's a reference to ethnic Israel, those who are biologically descended from Abraham. But I want you to notice that in the context, Paul is distinguishing ethnic Israel from his elect people throughout. Go back to the beginning of the chapter. He asks, has God cast away his people? Certainly not, for I am an Israelite. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew, verse 2. So right there, he's saying, I'm an Israelite, 
And I'm a believer in Jesus. So God has not rejected the Jewish people as a whole. He's not made it impossible for an Israelite to be saved because I'm an Israelite and I'm saved. What makes the difference? Well, it's obviously faith in Jesus. But do you notice that as he goes on, he's already making a distinction between the Israel that he's talking about and those he has elected unto salvation. He reminds them of the history of Elijah, and he says, Lord, they've, torn, they've killed your prophets, torn down your altars. I alone them left, and at that time, God had an elect remnant. And so verse 5, Paul says, even so then at this present time, there is a remnant according to the election of grace. And if by grace, then it is no longer of works, otherwise grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace, otherwise work is no longer work. So God has an elect remnant. You say, oh, right, he's, he's chosen some Jews to save, right. But then notice verse 7. What then? Israel has not obtained what it seeks, but the elect have obtained it. And the rest were blinded. The rest of who? The rest of Israel. The rest of the Jews. He's already making this distinction. And he's using Israel not to refer to the elect, but to refer to the ethnic group. Do you see that? And so if you say, well, well, all Israel will be saved just means all of the elect, you have Paul confusing his terminology. Do you, do, are you following me? He is, he's making the distinction, not all Jews are elect. There are, there's Israel, and then there's elect people whom God will save. But in verse 26, he says, all Israel is going to be saved. And if you say all Israel is, well, all of the, just those who are elect from within Israel, you have Paul confusing his terms. Israel has not obtained what it seeks. The elect have obtained it. The rest were blinded. The question is, how many Israelites are going to be elect in future generations? And that is the question. And that is really the substance of the promise. He says in verse 13, I speak to you Gentiles inasmuch as I am an apostle of the Gentiles. I magnify my ministry if by any means I may provoke to jealousy those who are my flesh and save some of them. What does Paul want them to see? He wants them to see that all of the promises of Israel's restoration have been poured out upon the Gentiles. The promises, the blessings that Israel is praying for still to that day in the synagogues in Psalm 80 have now come to the Gentiles and Paul wants his Jewish brethren to come and experience the same. If their casting, being cast away is the reconciling of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Now, this is important. I, I had to sing Psalm 80 and I referenced before we sang it the fact that the promises of return from exile and the restoration of Israel were not ultimately going to be fulfilled just in the physical return to the land. They were going to happen in Christ. And so Israel has returned to God in Jesus. But do you realize, like the irony, is that the majority of Israelites have not returned. Do you see that? So Israel has returned to God, has returned to Yahweh in Christ through faith, but the majority of Jews have not returned because they have not embraced Jesus as the Messiah. Now how does the Old Testament describe that return and restoration? Remember Ezekiel 37? Ezekiel's taken out to a valley full of dry bones. And what does the Lord say? He says, prophesy. And Ezekiel begins to prophesy, and what happens? The bones come together, 
and they stand upright and flesh appears and they begin to breathe and here is the army of Israel. It's regeneration. In fact, this is what Jesus and Nicodemus are talking about in John chapter 3. You must be born again. And you think that that's just about you and Jesus. And yeah, obviously there's an individual aspect to our regeneration, to our being made alive again. But why does does Jesus throw it back at Nicodemus and says, you're the teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? He's supposed to be able to understand these things because the prophets talk about Israel's resurrection, their regeneration. When is that going to happen? Well, when they come back from exile. But they haven't come back until they come to faith in Christ. That promise is only fulfilled in Christ. Well, notice verse 15, that's the very point Paul is making. If they're being cast away, causes the world that is estranged from the covenants of promise to be reconciled to God, what will their acceptance be? What what would their acceptance be? It would be them believing in Jesus, right? Receiving him as the Messiah. What will that be, Paul asks, except life from the dead? Resurrection. A valley of dry bones. Suddenly living, breathing praise to God because they recognize their king. And that's what he has in view here. Notice that he continues to distinguish and use Israel to refer to ethnic Jews as he continues in the next section of the chapter. Verse 16, if the first fruit is holy, the lump is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. He's tracing it from Abraham all the way forward. Jews today are part of that heritage. They're part of that lineage. And if the root is holy, the branches are holy. Now, this is just like children in your household. Your children are holy, covenantally. If your children grow up and they walk away from Jesus, what will happen? They'll be cut off. The curses of the covenant will fall upon them, right? Your children are holy. 1 Corinthians 7, 14 says they are saints. Same word in Greek. But if your children grow up and they renounce faith in Jesus, what's going to happen? Well, they are covenant breakers. The curses of the covenant are going to fall upon them. Is that because they are unholy? It's because they have become unholy who were once holy. It's not as if they were outsiders. No, they were insiders. And they have betrayed the covenant that they were born under. Well, Paul is making the argument that that's Israel's situation. He says, verse 17, if some of the branches were broken off... And you, Gentile, believer, being a wild olive tree, were grafted in among them and with them became a partaker of the root and fatness of the olive tree. Do not boast against the branches. <laughs> Don't boast about your standing, your position here, because you, you didn't originally belong here. They did. The root of the church is Jewish. The root of the church is Hebraic. The root is the Abrahamic covenant. And that's their heritage. That's their back. Now, if they don't believe in Jesus, what happens? No one is saved because of his ethnicity. No one is saved because of his biology. No one is saved because he's born into a Christian family. No one is saved because he's biologically descended from Abraham. You're saved through faith. And so if you don't believe, you'll be cut off just as they were. But do you understand that God's cutting off the natural branches in that case? You weren't a natural branch. You were grafted into this tree. If you're familiar with the fact that the olive tree is used throughout the Old Testament and in the ministry of Jesus to to depict Israel, then this contrast should be really obvious. Israel here can only be ethnic Jews. that's, That's 
who the tree is. That's who the tree is made up of. And yet unbelieving Jews are cut out. That's one of the parts that I think some of my dispensational brothers don't appreciate significantly. That there's not, there's not really a, a, a salvific advantage in being Jewish. There's advantages, as Paul says back in Romans chapter 9, but they're all covenantal advantages. You're not going to be saved because you were born into a Jewish family. In fact, if you don't believe in the Messiah, the curses of that covenant fall upon you just as they would in a Christian household. But, notice, he says, verse 20, Because of unbelief they were broken off, and you stand by faith. Do not be haughty, but fear. For if God did not spare the natural branches, He may not spare you either. By the way, this is a robust picture of covenant apostasy. If you think apostasy is just a hypothetical category in the New Testament, you really need to spend some time in Romans 11. These are branches that are growing out of the stock and then cut off and set aside to be burned. These are other branches being grafted in who if they then fall away from grace will be cut off again. And no, nobody who is elect from the foundation of the world is losing his salvation. Nobody who's truly justified and forgiven is, is, you know, God's changing his mind. That's not what's happening. But there's real apostasy here because there's real covenantal connection. King Ahab is connected to to the tree. Judas is connected to the tree. And when they break covenant with God, the curses of the covenant fall upon them. But notice he says, verse 22, Therefore consider the goodness and severity of God on those who fail severity, but towards you goodness, if you continue in His goodness, otherwise you also will be cut off. And they also, if they do not continue in unbelief, will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. How how much easier is it to graft in the natural branches, Paul is asking. If he can graft you in, and you're a wild olive tree, you don't don't even belong to the same stock. But if he can graft you into this tree so that you now draw nutrients from that root, how much easier to restore the natural branches? And you might be thinking, well, yeah, wouldn't that be a wonderful thing if the Lord did that? And I'm sure he will do that with a, a, a random person here and there. There's going to be a, a, a scattering of the Jews that, that somehow come to faith. But, but notice what he says in verse 25 again. I do not desire, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own opinion, that blindness in part has happened to Israel. Who is the Israel? It's not the Israel of God there. It's the Jews. It's ethnic Israel. Until when? The fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And then what? And thus, in this manner, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the Deliverer will come out of Zion and He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is My covenant with them when I take away their sins. Paul is quoting there in verse 26 from the Old Testament in order to demonstrate that that prophecy has not yet been fulfilled. Do you see that? I mean, the Deliverer has come out of Zion. What's He going to do? He's going to turn ungodliness away from Jacob. Has that happened? Well, I mean, you could say... Typologically, yeah. To a degree, yeah. I mean, you have the 12 apostles sitting on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel in the regeneration that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 19. But it's already but not yet, isn't it? Just like everything else in our salvation, just like everything else in the new covenant, in the kingdom that we're in right now, it's already true, but not yet fully. We, we have the majority of Jewish people who don't embrace their heritage in any significant religious way and do not recognize their Messiah. And yet, what is God's covenant? 
His covenant is that I will take away their sin. And what's the fundamental sin of Israel that has to be taken away from them to be saved? Unbelief. It's the fundamental sin, right? Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. Who is he talking about? He's talking about the Jews. He can't be talking about anyone else there. The Jews are the enemies of the church at the time Paul's writing this. Who are the primary people that are persecuting the Christians? It's it's the Jews. Those are our enemies. He says, well, right, right now. But for the sake of their fathers, they are beloved for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. For as you were once disobedient to God, yet now have obtained mercy through their disobedience, they disobeyed the gospel by failing to believe in Jesus. And that provided opportunity and entry to the Gentiles to come into the kingdom of God. Even so, these also have now been disobedient, that through the mercy shown you, they also may obtain mercy. And if you're reading that and saying, well, they may obtain mercy, but they probably won't, you're missing the force of the text. He's not saying it's potential. He's saying this is the promise. This is the mystery that I don't want you to be ignorant of. And then notice finally verse 32. For God has committed them all to disobedience that he may have mercy on a few. Is that what your Bible says? Who's the all? And once you answer that who the all is in the first half of the sentence, you have to ask the same question of the second all. For God has committed them all to disobedience. All them who? All them Jews who have not believed in Jesus. I mean, Paul's believed in Jesus. Peter's believed in Jesus. John's believed in Jesus. There have been some that believe, but, but all, most, of, most of them have not. God's committed them all to disobedience. To what end? That he might damn them to hell? That he might have mercy on all. Do you see the parallel? Yeah. So I think that, that a straightforward reading of that passage is in favor of an optimistic view of the Jewish nation uh, in, in the future. So let me just point you to a few of the things I said on the notes and then, and then we'll move on to the next point. Um, again, this, I'm not saying that God has two peoples. I am not saying that Israel and the church are two distinct people groups or that there are two different plans. I am not saying that the reestablishment of the state of Israel in 1948 was a fulfillment of prophecy. I don't think that it was. Uh, I don't think that it was a sign of the end times. But I do believe that what this passage is talking about is the hope that as the world comes to faith in Christ, the Jewish people, by and large, will finally recognize their king. They will recognize the Messiah, and the majority of Jews will be saved, just as at this time, the majority of Jews is lost. And let me give you just a couple of quotes uh, from R.C. Sproul. I've given you a little more on the handout. But Sproul, in his commentary on Romans, said this, quote, Some take the position that there is no more to be done of any special character with the Jewish people other than the conversions of individuals from Judaism to Christianity. Others are convinced that the Christian church has become the new Israel, the spiritual Israel, and all biblical prophecies in the Old Testament and the New that refer to the future of Israel find their fulfillment totally and exclusively in the Christian church. Still others are of the opinion that God indeed does plan a new redemptive work, specifically targeted at the Jews, and with a view to their restoration in the kingdom of God. Personally, I have been persuaded that God does intend to write another chapter for the Jewish people. I do think that is what is happening in Palestine, that, that, that what is happening in Palestine today is significant, and I've been persuaded that there will be a restoration of the Jewish people to faith in Christ before the end of the age. And many of you know that that was not always Sproul's view. 
right? His views on prophecy, his views on eschatology changed later in his life, and this was one part of that. He goes on and says this just a little bit later in the same lesson. He says, The Jews as a people are presently under judgment, but as there was a national judgment, so there will be a national restoration. Their rejection, even though it was a national rejection, did not include the rejection of every individual. So the restoration doesn't necessarily mean that every individual Jew will be saved, but the nation as a nation will be restored to God, end quote. And I think that's a fair reading of it. And in fact, that is the historic uh, reading of it, at least uh, especially among Reformed theologians, although not limited to them. All right, and you'll probably have some questions about that we'll talk about uh, in just a minute. Let me, let me clip through quickly these last three points on your handout uh, so that we can at least close out this part uh, tonight. The, the, the next thing I want to point out to you is that the at last enemy that Jesus will destroy is death, and that that is eschatologically significant. This comes out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, where Paul is discussing the general resurrection of the dead in relation to Christ's own resurrection and in relation to Christ's present rule. And as he's laying out the sequence of all of these things, he says in verse 24, Then comes the end when he, Christ, delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign till he has put all enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be destroyed is death. Now, if you're familiar with the passages that talk about Jesus' millennial reign, right? And, and again, the millennium, the thousand years, is only referred to in one passage in your Bible, but it's implicitly involved in other passages that, depending on what your perspective is, you may put more or fewer passages into that category. But it's referred to specifically in Revelation chapter 20, and it precedes Christ's second coming, his coming on the last day, his coming in judgment. He raises the dead. He banishes the wicked to hell, he casts the devil there, he empties death, uh, and then he ushers in the eternal state. Uh, you're familiar with that, but notice what Paul is saying, is that Jesus must put all enemies under his feet, and the last enemy to be subdued is death itself. In other words, the resurrection of the dead is the final enemy to be vanquished. And yet, what are some of the other enemies? You think about Psalm 110 that is quoted so often in the New Testament. Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Well, what are the enemies of Christ that are in view there? Uh, kings and magistrates and nations and rebellious individuals who defy the rule of Messiah. All of those enemies are going to be subdued before the resurrection on the last day. Think about the implications of that for a minute. Jesus is going to raise the dead, and before He raises the dead, He will have already brought into submission all other enemies that stand against Him. Now, does that mean every single individual is in a posture of repentance and faith? Not necessarily. But Jesus will be known and acknowledged as Lord. Every knee will bow every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Now, as an amillennialist, I always just kind of assumed that would happen at when Jesus came again and raised the dead and brought us all to judgment, and at the judgment seat of Christ, every knee will bow, every tongue will confess, and these people on this side are, who are confessing it are saved, and these people on this side are confessing it as they're damned, but, but that's when it's going to happen, that's how it's going to happen. But, but that's not what 1 Corinthians 15 says. 1 Corinthians 15 says every one of those enemies is going to be brought into submission to King Jesus before the dead are raised. 
And the dead are raised at Jesus' second coming, which means that the submission of enemies is going to happen before Jesus' second coming. And that's why when we talk about an optimistic eschatology, we're not just talking about Jesus winning on the last day. All Christians agree He wins on the last day. We're talking about having an optimism about the future of this present world, believing that Jesus is going to prevail in this day. And it won't necessarily be in our lifetime, or in the lifetime of our children, or our grandchildren, or our great-grandchildren, but we want to be building a multi-generational understanding of the kingdom of God, because that's the way it's presented to us in Scripture. Another point, the new, king, the new Covenant is the fulfillment of the Abrahamic promises to bless the world. This is a point we've made in different ways many times, but let me just remind, it, remind you of it here to tie some of these things together. In Galatians chapter 3, really it was Galatians 3 and 4 that made me covenantal and, and a paedo-baptist. So like, there's, there's only one reference to baptism in Galatians 3. But seeing the way in which Paul ties together the Abrahamic promise and the New Covenant convinced me that the Old Testament is not one thing, and then God finishes that thing, turns the page, and starts something else, but rather the New Covenant is the consummation and fulfillment of the same plan, the same pattern, the same promises that God gave to Abraham long ago. Notice in Galatians 3, the Scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, In you all the nations shall be blessed. Now pause there for a second. How does Paul summarize the gospel that was preached to Abraham? It's that all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's the good news. And it's good news about Christ. There's going to come one, the seed of the woman, who will crush the head of the serpent, and who is going to bring blessing to all families of the earth, all nations of the earth. That's gospel. That's the gospel. It's the same gospel you've believed, and Paul says it was preached to Abraham in his day by means of that promise. So then, he continues, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree, that the blessing of Abraham might come upon the Gentiles in Christ Jesus, that we might receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. And then he says down later in the chapter, For you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. And the reason I'm wanting to come back to this, we, we mentioned this briefly in our survey of some Old Testament texts that lend itself to optimism. The reason I want to come back to this here is to see that, that all of these ideas are connecting. Everything that we just read in Romans chapter 11, everything that we've seen in the Old Testament before, everything that God is doing in Christ right now is the outworking of that same promise. That same global promise that through the history of humanity, God is going to bring blessing to everyone, to all nations, to all families. That's the extent of the gospel promise. That's the extent of the hope that we are involved in right now. And I would simply ask you, do you believe that? I mean, do you believe that promise? Because I think a lot of Christians would say, yes, I believe that blessing will come to some from among all nations. But that's technically not what it says. 
It says that all nations of the world shall be blessed. And that's always been the good news. And it's been the good news all the way back in the time of Abraham. And you, Gentile, who believe in Jesus, are part of that blessing that's coming upon the world. But as, as Dane and I have said before, I think a lot of Christians, including a lot of Reformed Christians, they believe that in the New Covenant, we are living in the already and no more. Right? So you know, we've talked about the already but not yet. Already Jesus is a king, but we do not yet see his lordship as fully, as consummately as, as we will one day. Like Already we're justified from our sins, but, but on the last day we'll have this final vindication. Already we're sanctified, we're holy, but, but one day we'll be fully sanctified. You know, already, yes it's true, the kingdom is here, but it's not yet to the fullness that we expect and hope one day to see. But I think a lot of Christians they have in mind already but no more. Already and that's it. I mean, this is good. Like, we've, we've got representative Christians, at least one, from every people group in the face of the planet, so, so we're good. We're good. You know, we've got six and a half billion unbelievers, but, but we've got, we've got a, a smattering of believers, and, and, and that's good. That fulfills the promise. It, I mean, if that's what God wants to do, that's fine. But you've read all of these passages. Do you see why that's hard to sustain? Do you see why that's not a straightforward reading of any of these texts? You see why everything from the Old Testament to the New Testament is lending itself instead to the kind of optimism that says Jesus is going to save the world. Because that's why he came. He didn't come to condemn the world. He came to save the world. No, that doesn't mean every single person. Yeah, All of the qualifications still apply. But it, but it seems to mean that he's going to save a lot more people than a lot of Christians have realized. And do we believe that? Do we believe that he can do that? Do we believe that his kingship is capable of that? Do we believe that the gospel is that powerful? The gospel is not a message merely about individual salvation. That's what we've got to get past. And by past, I don't mean abandon it. I mean that we have to further embrace the global aspect of the gospel and realize that God has come to save more than we might have imagined. And then finally, a verse we've referred to many times before. It's in Revelation chapter 11 and verse 15. The seventh angel sounded... And there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ, and He shall reign forever and ever. This is the blowing of the seventh trumpet. And what does it announce? What does it declare? It says the kingdoms of the world belong to Jesus, and He's the one who will reign forever. Now my question is, will we ever see that? Will we ever see that? I mean, is it, is it rule in name only? Is it de jure but not de facto? That Jesus is the titular Lord, but realistically the devil actually has all of the power and control. The Bible does not say that Christ merely rules over the hearts of repentant individuals. Of course he does that as well. It says that he is the king everywhere. And if the kingdoms of this world have come under the rule of Christ, what will Christ do as those kingdoms disobey him? I would suggest that he will do exactly what we've seen throughout the history of the world thus far and what we're seeing in our own nation right now. I think when you look at what's going on in our land, again, we talked about this in Sunday school, uh, you know, how can we look at the news? How can we look at our nation and have any optimism at all? Well, w- wouldn't you expect that Jesus as the king of the nations is going to judge the nations that walk in disobedience? I mean, p- people make choices People behave badly. People fall into disobedience and unbelief of various kinds. What does the king do? 
He judges the nations. How does he do that? Well, in Romans chapter 1, he does that by handing over the nations to their own foolishness. He will shake every kingdom of this world until only the unshakable kingdom remains. But I want you to notice that the gospel is presented in Scripture in political terms. And I realize that's a loaded, a loaded term that we have to be careful that we don't misunderstand what we mean by that. But the gospel is presented in political terms. It's concerned about the, the welfare of the city. It's concerned about the government of the city and of the world, that Jesus is the king everywhere. He's not just a spiritual savior. He's not just your personal guru. He's not just there to kind of, you know, pat your hand and and make you feel better until you die and go to heaven to be with him. He's here to rule with a rod of iron and to shatter nations that walk in unbelief and disobedience. So when we look at all of that together, I think there are reasons to say the Bible teaches us to have an optimistic expectation with regard to the future of the present world. We believe that the gospel is going to succeed. We believe that the church is going to grow. We believe that the gates of hell are not going to prevail, but that the church will assault the gates of hell and that they will fall. We believe that God's people will be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it to the obedience of Christ that the destiny of the world is not merely technology and advances in medicine and just human kinds of secular flourishing, that the future of the world is definitely not pluralism, it's piety. Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and they'll do that before Jesus returns, before he raises the dead, and before he judges the world. So that's, that's the New Testament picture. All right. Um, if, I, I don't know if any of you still have your notes from the first session uh, some weeks ago, but let me just remind you of the next couple of things that we're going to be looking at uh, in the outline, and this will start next week. Um, the next point in our, in our study is this. Idealism, by which we are referring to a particular interpretation of prophecy, idealism cannot do justice to biblical prophecy. And preterism, which is another view of prophecy, leads more naturally to post-millennialism than amillennialism. I'm going to try and show you next week why all Orthodox Christians actually are preterists of a sort, and that naturally lends itself to post-millennialism rather than amillennialism. Death is the last enemy that Jesus will destroy, not the first. We're going to circle back to that uh, in a future lesson and, and say a little bit more about it. Christians still pray, Thy kingdom come, and the coming of Christ changes things for the better. Those are the next four parts of our study, and I'll remind you, just as these last couple of sections have taken us multiple weeks to unpack, some of the future sections we're intending to combine. And so some of them may be shorter, some of them may be longer, but that's where we're going, Lord willing. All right?